In old school games, life is cheap. In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope, bring a torch or a rope, or you might go down in a heap. You might go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis down here in the rumpus room, ready to take another swing, well, I don't know, another take, (laughs) another attempt to do the old school essentials, advanced edition, deep dive. This will be part two, carrying on with more of the character class options in OSC Advanced by Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome the top of the show there we heard from john from tale of the manticore with his very cool rendition of the down in a heap theme song so thanks for that john i appreciate it there were a couple calls and because there weren't like a ton maybe i'll just uh if there's only one or two calls between these deep dive episodes maybe i'll just include them in the body but if i if they start piling up then i'll throw together a, a call-in bonanza if you have any strong feelings on uh, on those either of those approaches let me know but first let's move on to those calls one from jason from nerds rpg variety cast and one from joe from the hindsightless podcast take it away guys hey rob jason here listen to your ose advanced fantasy deep dive episode one really excited you're doing a great job here i i'm glad you're doing this so i bought this just pdf only i didn't buy physical books i did buy pdf only to support gavin norman even though i prefer the original books because i think he's doing a service here i do have the i did buy a rules home the basic rules home you know i do have that but i i still have bx so i still use original bx personally but to me, this is interesting, but I kind of think all this is, this doesn't feel like AD&D to me. And I'm interested when you're all done, if you think this scratches that itch for AD&D for you. So I'm curious to see, and same thing with Keith. So to me, this, and maybe it's because we've had all these years of OSR play, right? So all these years of the OSR from, you know, the mid-2000s, so for almost the last 20 years, we've had homebrew classes and things like that. So this feels to me like BX with a bunch of homebrew OSR classes, you know, from people's blogs and things, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not being negative here, but it doesn't feel like AD&D. It just feels like house rule BX to me. Uh, like, you look at the Acrobat you talk about. The Acrobat is nowhere near as good as a thief acrobat in AD&D. I mean, who... I, I don't know. I don't see the purpose for it, honestly. It's, I, I mean, they're not billing it as a thief acrobat, which is good, but if you can't detect traps and pick locks, you're not a thief. And, and I know they don't call it a thief, but what... I don't know. It just seems weird to me. I, I mean, if you're just going to be a, a roly-tumbly fighter, then make them a swashbuckler and build them off a fighter class, not a thief class. But I don't know. It, it, it definitely is interesting. I paused at Acrobat because I get back to work, but I will listen to the rest later, call you again. 
but I didn't want these messages to be too, too long. But I am excited to hear this. And again, I'm not being negative. I, I think it's, you know, these are really cool and people should pick them up. But to me, it feels more like BX with additional classes, like you see out of people's blogs and all, than it feels like AD&D, if, if that makes sense. As far as you're asking dates, the D&D cartoon was 1983, Unearthed Arcana was 1985, but like you say, the, a lot of the classes in Unearthed Arcana, in fact, just about all the classes in Unearthed Arcana were in Dragon Magazine originally. I don't have that handy to look up when each of those classes came out, but, you know, there's definitely a connection there. So, anyhow, I will listen to the rest of the episode when I can, and I'll call you and talk to you about the other classes when I can. Great job. Keep up the great work. Thank you for doing this. Hey, Rob, loving the deep dive on OSC Advanced. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about maybe getting it. I haven't yet, so I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm searching for something. I don't even know what it is yet. But anyway, man, <laughs> I was thinking about the Acrobat while you were talking about it. And you mentioned that, you know, the Acrobat does. They have to give up so much, so it's probably better to go uh, Thief. But then I was thinking, because at the beginning of your show, you talked about how the basic, the B of the BX, was more focused on, like, dungeon diving, while the X part, the expert part, was more focused on, like, wilderness, urban kind of stuff. And I wonder if that was sort of the mindset, you know, since since the Acrobat came out for the advanced, if they were thinking more of, like, city, urban type adventures. Because the Acrobat sounds like it would make a kick-ass cat burglar. Like, being able to climb sheer surfaces and then, you know, walk around on the ledges of buildings and stuff. But even in, an, like, a wilderness adventure, being able to walk along narrow cliffs and ledges and go from, like, tree branch to tree branch kind of stuff. So, I don't know, man. I wonder if that's a thought. But it, it ultimately, it sort of begs the question of which came first. Did the cartoon or the classes come out first, you know? <laughs> it, that's I'd be really interested uh, to know which, yeah, man, chicken or egg, which came first. Anyway, great stuff, man. Can't wait for the next one. Talk to you soon. Peace out. Well, Jason brought it up there. Uh, as far as the chicken egg thing and what came first. Yeah, the D&D cartoon first uh, aired in September of 1983, and it ran through December of 1985. And the Unearthed Arcana came out in 1985. But the classes that were added in the Unearthed Arcana did come out in the Dragon Magazines, as we talked about. The Barbarian appeared in issue number 63, which was July of 1982, the Thief Acrobat was in issue number 69, which was January of 83. And the Cavalier was in issue number 72, which was April of 83. So all those classes were uh, set up in Dragon Magazine before the cartoon aired. Whether or not they were already kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, who knows when the cartoon production actually started, when they started writing the cartoon and you know doing all the animation and stuff but yeah they were out there before the cartoon so and i you know the cartoon was obviously a vehicle to uh drive sales for dungeons and dragons so it kind of makes sense to me that they wanted to push some of these new classes as well 
And as far as the the other topics brought up, I, yeah, I will, when we get to the end of this, um, I'll talk to Keith about it too to find out, like, if, does this scratch the AD&D itch for us? I, I have a feeling we won't really know that for sure until we play it for a while. But so much of that, uh, <laughs> whether you're able to scratch the itch or not, I think is dependent upon how you played AD&D. Now, if you played it with all the bells and whistles, all the extra doodads, and I mean, AD&D is a really uh, involved system. If you employ everything in it, the you know, like item saves, uh, you know, saving throws for like, oh, did my potion bottle break when I fell, or when I fireballed that group of bandits. How much of their equipment was destroyed? Well, let's roll for each one of them. Or the specific armor class versus weapon type tables. All the involved initiative and segments and uh, material components for spells and verbal somatic components for spells. And all those different things make it a very involved game. <laughs> Along with about a hundred other different things. So how you played the game, I think will determine whether or not this OSE Advanced Fantasy scratches that particular itch. I played a pretty loosey-goosey AD&D. I didn't use a lot of that stuff. And maybe it was because I read the BX rules before, or at least the basic rules, before I got uh, the advanced rules. And being a 12, 13-year-old kid just kind of figured well I know all this stuff so I'm just you know adding the new monsters I'm adding the new character classes I'm adding the new spells but I'm not really digging into the uh, the underlying core system to find out how that's different I think as we started playing all of us started discovering more and more things as we really dug into the DM's guide and stuff like that and there were times when we hewed closer to, like, a rules-as-written AD&D. But I don't think I ever really, you know, played anything approaching a rules-as-written AD&D game. There were just some things I didn't like. Uh, and some things that, while we played with them, like having a separate damage for small and medium creatures and a separate damage versus large creatures for each weapon type... And we played with that, but I always thought it was kind of dumb. Um, I still think it's a little superfluous. So, there, I mean, and having come back now and playing House Rule BX as our our group's, like, go-to system, that's, that's what I want. So actually having Old School Essentials Advanced, which is basically... House ruled BX. I mean, that's what it's <laughs> that's what its intent is: is to be inspired by the material from AD and D, and bringing those various things uh, under the umbrella or the framework of the OSE Classic uh, system setup, the BX system setup. I, I think that's the intent that Gavin has for it. So I don't think if you're 
kind of an AD&D purist, I don't think it's probably the, the game for you. I think something like Osric, um, or uh, I'm trying to remember if there are any others. I don't know how closely, like, Labyrinth Lord, Advanced Edition Companion, I don't have that, so I don't know how closely that hues to to it. But, you know, the especially if you're playing uh, with the the demi-human classes. You know, I'm I'm an elf, I'm a Durgar, I'm a gnome, I'm a halfling. I'm not a halfling thief or a Durgar fighter or an elven magic user thief. If you play with the demi-human classes, then I think you're, yeah, you're not really going to capture, especially for, from a player point of view, maybe the AD&D nostalgia. But there are, we'll get to the rules here in this as, as far as... Uh, um, separating the 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 race species of your your character and the class uh, so yeah and as far as the acrobat goes um yeah the so the thief acrobat in AD&D was i don't know if you want to call it a prestige class i don't really know exactly what that is it sounds like it's something you had to play one class to to earn like pre prerequisites and uh before you could be this other class and i guess the original ad bard is kind of the precursor for that and the thief acrobat is kind of the the second one because you had to become well you needed i think a 15 strength and a 16 dexterity first but then you needed to attain fifth level as a thief before you could become a thief acrobat and then if i remember right i think you left all, all many of your thieving abilities like the ones that Gavin doesn't include as uh, as ones that the acrobat gets in OSE Advanced, like open locks, find traps, pickpockets, all that, just stayed at that level. They didn't get any better, and instead you you know picked up all these acrobat things. Uh, so I don't know. I think and like you got a tumbling attack in that, and it just I think added to the kooky percentages and stuff that. We're in the unarmed combat rules for AD&D, so, you know, we, I don't remember there ever being a thief acrobat in any of the games that I played, because I, honestly, I didn't think it was a very good option. Now, what Joe outlines, yeah, I think if you're playing a game, especially a game of thieves, where, you know, you're uh, running all kinds of heists and stuff, Having a character that's an acrobat could be a real boon. Uh, and if the player themselves, I think, needs to look for opportunities to use all these, you know, tightrope walking and how can I evade pursuit by well, jumping off a cliff because I've got this falling, uh, reducing damage kind of capability and stuff. Um, and, and using your tumbling and all that business. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, the acrobat could be a fun class to play i just think in most like classic adventure gaming the thief is going to be if you've got only like five or six four characters choosing whether to be an acrobat or a thief the thief is going to i think be a lot more advantageous to a party in most circumstances uh, versus an acrobat hmm Looking back, too, uh, there were a couple things I meant to talk about on those first three classes and didn't. One was for the assassin. 
in the the AD&D assassin had of course a big chart that would determine your percent chance to assassinate your victim based on one axis the level of the your the level of the assassin and on the other the level of the intended victim and if you matched up if it was like a first level assassin going after a zero level or first level victim it was a 50% chance and it for each level that the victim was beyond that it would reduce it by like 5% or something like that um, and conversely as the assassin went up in level they'd get like 5% higher versus uh, uh, lower level victims and stuff so it was this this chart of course and Gavin simplifies it by just having it be a saving throw and I like that uh, as a as an alternative kind of system and, and just like higher level assassins incur a, a penalty on that saving throw I'd maybe maybe say that you have to make an assassin assassination attempt with like a dagger it just seems a little bit weird to me like to try and assassinate someone with a pole arm or uh, a two-handed sword it seems like you'd need something that you could be very precise with and that it would be an edged weapon so that you could, you know, cut some artery or whatever it is that you're doing to, uh, to make that precise killing blow. Um, and really, because it's a backstab anyway, um, the damage done versus a low-level creature <laughs> is probably going to kill it as likely as as like failing the save versus assassination but uh anyway the other thing about the barbarian is you'll note that there's nothing about like rage or berserk uh powers and stuff like that in the barbarian because they weren't present in the original one that i don't know where that came about where the the whole shtick of the barbarian is that they're a berserker um or at least have these rage kind of things which I like because to me that should be if you're going to have all these different subclasses then have a berserker as a subclass or something and there was one that came out way back and maybe strategic review or very early dragons um, there was a berserker class that they came out with and uh, I think they were tied to different lycanthropes too or something and they'd maybe change into a different animal form um, but their chance to, uh, <laughs> I remember there was a chance that you, that you'd be able to throw yourself into the berserk frenzy and you could improve that chance by chewing on your shield. <laughs> I love that. But, uh, all right, I'll stop droning on now and move on to the actual breaking down some more classes and we'll start with the bard. Your indulgence on one more thing about the thief acrobat that came to mind. In the original class, you had a progression for how far you could broad jump and like a running leaping jump and pole vaulting, how high you could jump with a pole and stuff like that. Or maybe it was just high jump and then if you had a pole that added something, maybe the length of the pole to the jump or something, I don't remember exactly. But what was hilarious is 
the distances were, at least for the broad jump, I remember that being, like, laughably short in that I remember, I think as a sixth level thief acrobat, remember, I think you, so you had to get to fifth level in thief and then earn enough experience, I think, to go to sixth level and then you became a thief acrobat with training and stuff like that. So sixth level was, I think, the lowest you could be as a thief acrobat. And the broad jump was four feet. <laughs> and I remember, like, thinking, that doesn't seem very far. I mean, can't you just, my stride is almost, isn't that much shorter than that? Uh, so I did a broad jump and, <laughs> like, measured it. And it was, like, five feet. So I was like, wow, I, I, I have a broad jump of the equivalent of, like, a seventh-level thief acrobat or eighth-level thief acrobat or something. And I bet even as a 54-year-old fat man, I could still broad jump over four feet. <laughs> anyway, some of the sometimes those those numbers that they cooked up seemed like nobody even like is that really all that far? Can I do it? I mean, <laughs> did Gygax think about it and, and try and do it himself, or did any of his players like demonstrate that? Just wondering. But I it, so there was all these tables for for that kind of stuff for the thief acrobat too, and I I actually kind of like the fact that. Gavin Norman in this simplified acrobat class and OSE Advanced just kind of gave us a a bullet point kind of thing. <laughs> this is how far you can jump. Um, maybe it's it would be, maybe it would be better if it if the lengths got longer as you got higher level and stuff. But at the same time, I wouldn't want it to become some kind of crazy crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of magical jumping where you become a superhero um so maybe if the bounds were you know like gold medalist or something um hmm. anyway enough blabbering and yeah now finally we'll do everyone's favorite class except mine the bard all right, everyone by now, if you listen to my show, probably knows that I hate the bard. <laughs> I'm a bard hater. Not really. Well, yeah, I don't I don't like the bard. In general, I think it's because a lot of players look at it as a power gaming class. It's a shortcut to be like a jack-of-all-trades, to be able to do all kinds of different things without having to pay the, the price and being a multi-class character. You get to wear armor, use all these weapons, cast spells, in many cases have thieving abilities, and then also have all kinds of crazy bard powers. <sighs> so, <laughs> and I realize a lot of people like being the bard just because they like the idea of being some kind of entertainer, a rock star, storyteller, lore keeper, whatever. I've never seen one played very well. Maybe one. Maybe one was played all right. All the others kind of sucked. So the bard in AD&D was, um, as I said, kind of a prestige class. You had to have 15s and... Seems like every ability score, I think, 15 in, like, strength, dexterity, charisma, maybe wisdom, too. And then I think a 10 intelligence, and um, and I, th I think there was even a minimum for constitution. If that wasn't uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, then you also had to become at least a 5th level fighter, but not higher, I think, than 8th. And then you had to switch to a thief and advance to at least 6th level in a thief, and then you could finally become a bard. 
So you really didn't see any bards, at least uh, legitimate ones. Um, I don't remember ever having anyone in a in a campaign be a bard. But then uh, Dragon Magazine, like so many other things, um, issue number 56, uh, December 81, made a single-class bard. And I, th I don't even know if, the, like, the original bard in Strategic Review, I think that might have been something where you just started as a bard, too, not had to progress through all these these hoops and different classes before you could become a bard. Um, but the bard in the Dragon Magazine didn't have any of the thieving abilities, at least I don't remember there being any, and they got druid and illusionist spells, but they were a limited repertoire, but they still had the, like, percentage to charm, percentage for lore, I think, got extra languages and stuff like that. Second edition kind of made this jack-of-all-trades, where they had some thieving abilities, like pickpockets, climbing walls, hear noise, and read languages, and they could wear, like, armor, but they couldn't cast spells while wearing armor, and they could use more weapons, maybe any weapon, I can't remember now. I think they maybe could use any weapon. Uh, and But then a lot of their bardy kind of stuff was covered on under the non-weapon proficiencies, and they got some of them for free. Anyway, we're not here to talk about this. This is those things, because this is Gavin Norman's interpretation of a bard, and it's actually, I think, pretty good. Uh, I think it's taking kind of the spirit of what a character would have from being a bard in AD&D, but not with all the fighter and thief uh, backdrop, of course, so you don't have any of those special powers, because in AD&D, a first-level bard would be <laughs> the equivalent of, like, a seventh-level character anyway, at least, maybe eighth-level or higher. Um, so putting it into, like, an OSE spin... You got the, you've got a couple minimum requirements. You have to have a dexterity of 9 and an intelligence of 9. The prime requisite is charisma. Use a d6 hit points. You can use leather and chainmail, but you can't use a shield. I guess you have to have both hands free to beat those bongos or play the loot or whatever. Um, they could use missile weapons and any one-handed melee weapon, but you can't use two-handed weapons. So there's a few drawbacks from a combat point of view. They have the level progression of a fighter, so you need 2,000 experience points to get to second level, 4,000 to get to third, etc., etc. Their saving throws and to hit adjustments are those of a thief. And their spell progression, they get druid spells, but they don't, like a cleric, they don't start out with any at first level. They have to prove their devotion, and they get one at second, and they can get up to fourth level spells when they get to 11th level, but you're kind of a, a little bit of a, like a half-caster. You get a second-level spell at 5th, a third-level spell at 8th. So they're, I mean, they get, they do get spells, but they're not, you know, it's not um, a ton of them. They also don't have anything that's really thiefy about them. Uh, they do have, like, the... Uh, the anti-charm kind of thing, so they can play music um, and uh, uh, and make their allies immune to like song-based magical effects and beguiling powers of sylvan creatures or fairies. Um, allies already under the effect can make another save with a plus four bonus. Um, yeah, they get uh, 
the druid spell casting. They can use uh, magic scrolls of spells that are on their spell list. Uh, they may also use any item that only druids can use. Now here's their biggie, or one of their biggies, is the whole idea of what used to be a percent chance to charm. Um, and this is enchanting creatures with their, their singing and music. So they can fascinate subjects in a 30-foot radius. Here's the biggie, though. This ability does not function in combat. So it's a very um, potentially limited use. You can only affect up to two hit dice of creatures per level of the bard. Uh, they can choose to target a specific individual or a group, in which case the affected individuals are determined randomly, if you just say a group. If you're trying to charm, fascinate this group of bandits. Um, at first level, the bard can fascinate only persons, so demi-humans, humans, etc. Uh, the same... I'd say the same thing as uh, like what can be affected by a charm person spell. Uh, at fourth level, you can also affect animals, and at seventh level, monsters may be affected. Um, each subject gets to save versus spell, or be fascinated as follows. Wrapped. The fascinated subject's attention is fully bent on the bard's performance as long as it continues. Follow. The bard may walk while playing. Fascinated subjects will follow. Interruptions. If the performance is interrupted by loud, loud noise or violence, the fascination ends immediately. So you start heckling the bard loudly, throwing rotten eggs at him and stuff, and uh, it breaks the fascination. Oh, they're not such hot stuff after all. <laughs> now, if they, uh, if, if, if they do have some fascinated people, they can try and enhance that to charming them. So they have to perform at least one turn, so ten minutes, and having the performance end without interruption. The fascinated subjects may be placed under a deeper charm, so each subject must make another save versus spells, this time with a plus two bonus, or be charmed for one turn per level of the bard. Uh, they regard the bard as a trusted friend and ally, and will come to their defense. If they share a language, charmed subjects will obey the bard's commands, but uh, they will not obey commands that contradict the charms creatures creatures nature or alignment uh, and of course they won't follow any kind of suic obviously suicidal uh, or harmful orders uh, in this in the area of kind of the bard as lore master they learn new languages i like this um and that was part of the original bard in ad and d as well uh as the at every even-numbered level above third, so fourth, sixth, eighth, etc., the bard may choose an additional language. That's cool. And lore, they simplify this. At second level, a bard has a two and six chance of knowing lore pertaining to monsters, magic items, or heroes of folklore or legend. This ability may be used to identify the nature and powers of magic items. So it doesn't ever get any better. That's one thing... Eh, I kind of wish it was... You know, at at fifth level or sixth level or something, it became three and six, and at eleventh level, it became four and six or something like that. But uh, that's something you could easily add to it. But I wouldn't want to make it some kind of automatic. Um, and then at 
their domain level, after reaching 11th level, they can establish a manor and attract apprentice bards. So there you have it, the bard. It's, um, it again, it probably isn't something I'd use unless one of the players was just, you know, just loving the idea of being a bard. I'd, I'd probably say, go ahead, just don't be a horny, irritating bard, please. Please. And now let's move on to uh, the drow and some others. The um, This is where I think the OSC advanced. I was really interested to see how Gavin worked out the other demi-human species as a as a class. So I was interested to see how he'd handle the half-orc, the half-elf and gnome, and to a lesser degree, the subterranean demi-humans. So, yeah, Unearthed Arcana, and before that in Dragon Magazine, all these things <laughs> seem like were first introduced in Dragon. They uh, introduced the idea of playing the various um, underdark demi-humans. So the, the Drow, the Durgar, the Svirfneblin, and they were totally overpowered. Uh, they had some drawbacks, especially operating in daylight and bright light and stuff like that, but for the most part, they were way better than their surface-dwelling kin. Uh, so I was interested to see, I, I doubt if I'd, unless I had a specific under, uh, underground campaign, I doubt if I'd ever use these, uh, species as playable character race, uh, combos or classes or whatever, but I was kind of interested to see how Gavin would handle it. And for the drow, he basically used the elf template. So it's essentially an elf but instead of arcane magic user magic, they get uh, cleric spells. So they, they use the spell list for clerics. They, their prime requisite are strength and wisdom instead of strength and intelligence. They still have a minimum intelligence of nine. They have a D6 hit points uh, or hit die. They have a maximum level of 10. They can use any weapon and armor, just like uh, an elf. Um, they're immune to the ghoul paralysis. Their infravision goes up to 90 feet rather than 60. They, like all the other demi-humans, they have a 2 and 6 chance of hearing noises. They have the same level pro progression, same thaco progression, as, and spell progression as, a, as an elf. Uh, their saving throws are the same as an elf, but they are better, uh, they have better saving throws versus spells. That's the one difference. So they, oh, they also have the same, you know, thing for finding secret doors. Uh, for spellcasting, the one caveat is at first level, the only spell they can have is the reverse of light, darkness. Uh, but at second level, they can, they can cast any spell. And uh, as a third level drow, they get access to the magic user spell web as well as the rest of the cleric's uh, spells. So that's cool tying in the old spider kind of thing. And likewise, they have uh, a spider affinity. They can speak the secret language of spiders, and because they live alongside many different species of spiders, including giant spiders, they get a plus one bonus to reaction rolls when encountering them. Uh, they do have light sensitivity and bright light, daylight, continual light. They suffer a minus two penalty to attack rolls and a minus one on their armor class. So that's a little bit of a drawback for many uh, adventuring kind of situations. 
Uh, and then after reaching ninth level, they can uh, establish a domain in a, a subterranean stronghold or temple. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is well done. It's, uh, like I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it probably unless uh, I was running uh, a some kind of um, underdark, underdeep campaign kind of thing. Um, the druid holds on to the mechanics and feel of an AD&D druid. Um, I think more than any class so far, at least, this definitely is just, this is like the AD&D druid. So uh, they're essentially a subclass of cleric that focuses on the, on the wilderness and stuff. They're neutral. They have the saving throws and to hit progression of a cleric, they have a D6 hit die like a cleric. They're limited to leather and wooden shield. Um, their weapons, club, dagger, sling, spear, staff. Um, but yeah, like uh, AD&D, they, um, they have their own separate spell list. That's really what differentiates them. Um, they have uh, plus two on their saving throws versus electricity and fire, so lightning and fire. Um they immediately have the ability to identify all plants and animals and can dis discern pure water. That was something that they gained at third level in AD&D. Um, I think it's fine to just give it to them from the get-go. It's it's not some kind of like great superpower or something. It's very useful, but it's not game-breaking by any means. Uh, and like uh, AD&D, they can, they can pass without a trace starting at third level. They don't leave any... Uh, trace of their passage, and they can travel through, um, you know, like overgrown areas without any leaving a trace as well, or even any uh, impeding their progress. And the, the biggie, they can shape change, just like an AD&D at 7th level, they gain the power to change form into a uh, reptile, bird, and mammal once per day each. Uh, and they regain some lost hit points, if any, uh, when they do shape change. I think in AD&D it was percentages or something, and this is uh, a little bit more easy to articulate its, or implement. It's a D4 hit points per level upon changing into an animal. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, this is very much the AD&D druid. Uh, they, they're, they have to have mistletoe, that's like their... Their holy symbol, but in AD and D, where they it was differentiated between greater mistletoe and lesser mistletoe, and then you, if you didn't have access to those, you could use holly or oak leaves, and all those things would reduce the efficacy of the spells, either the the range, the duration, giving bonuses on saving throws to the the victim of the spell, and all that. So it had this in, involved system that was kind of cool but really clumsy and the greater mistletoe was almost impossible to procure he had to like <laughs> cut it on a under a the moonlight on a some high holy day or something it, it just seemed like it was kind of meant to, <laughs> to to nerf the druid a little bit um one thing they do have uh, which i don't think the ad and d druid had was this pathfinding ability and again uh, a few of the classes really kind of fold in the mechanical exploration rules of BX, which I think are outstanding. So I think it's cool that they have these things where uh, folding it into class abilities, the druid uh, 
only has a one in six chance of getting lost in woodlands. So they're they're not going to get lost in the woods nearly as often as like just regular old characters would. Uh, they also maintain the the whole idea of there only being a certain amount of druids at twelfth level and above, and that you have to challenge them to to gain entrance into this um, select society or something. The other thing of note is it maintains the crazy level progression of the druid, which starts out similar like a fighter, 2,000 to get to second level, 4,000 to get to third, but then it slows down, 750 to get to, or 7,500 to get to fourth, 12,500 to get to fifth, and then only 20,000 to sixth, 35,000 to seventh, so, and 60,000 to eighth. So the druid is like advancing faster than the thief now. Um, like a druid reaches eighth level before even a thief does. Uh, but then at upper levels, when when you get to that select group, then it starts really slowing down, especially at 13th and 14th level. So it's um, it's this odd level progression. Oh, and it should be noted, too, so the other big difference from a, a cleric and BX is the druid starts out with spells. In fact, their spell progression is basically that of a cleric one level higher. So... Um, uh, a fourth level druid is essentially has the spell list of a fifth level cleric or the spell access um, of a fifth level cleric. So, yeah, which means that they get third and and fourth level spells at fifth level. We'll have to take a look when we get to the going over the spell list, find out just how if that's uh, you know really putting them above the head and shoulders of the other character classes, depending on like well, what do you get as a fourth level spell for a druid. But uh, well, let's move on now to the Durgar. All right, like the Drow, the Durgar are another one of these underdark dwelling demi humans that um, Dragon Magazine first and Unearthed Arcana provided rules for. I don't really remember the Durgar nearly as well as the Drow. I think they may have had magic resistance too, like the Drow did, but it's wisely been scrubbed if they did have it from the. Uh, OSC advanced approach. Uh, these are the class, the the the, the demi human classes that I was most concerned about, thinking that they'd be overpowered, and I th I think it probably still is. Um, so the Durgar also are also known as gray dwarves. They use a template similar to um, like the dwarf, I guess, but it's not quite as clear-cut as the drow was using the elf as a template. They have the saving throws uh, and to hit progression of a dwarf. They can only go to 10th level, uh, whereas the dwarf can go to 12th. Uh, they have minimum requirements of 9 con like the dwarf, but also 9 intelligence. But their prime requisite is strength. They can use any armor, uh, any weapon that's appropriate to their size. Uh, they can detect, you know, like mining and construction like a dwarf and room traps like a dwarf. Uh, like the drow, their infravision is 90 feet rather than uh, 60 feet. And they have the same light, light sensitivity to, uh, to bright light and continual light like a drow. And like all demi-humans, they get the two and six chance of uh, 
hearing noises at doors and whatnot. The biggie is the mental powers in at least the monster description of Durgar in AD&D. They were psionic and they had the ability to enlarge themselves, to shrink themselves, to uh, make themselves invisible. And I believe the ability to like manipulate molecules to, uh, and items to, uh, to heat them up and stuff. And they, so Gavin has given these powers as well. And I thought maybe they'd be something that you attain at different levels if they had them, but instead he's gone with the approach that you can activate one of the following mental powers once per day per level. So at first level, you could use any of these things, but only once per day. And you activate the mental powers just like a spell. You spend, well, similar to a spell, you spend a full round concentrating in order to activate a mental power, which precludes you from moving, attacking, and performing any other actions, and it can be interrupted just like a spell. So, enlargement, the Durgar's body, clothing, and armor, but not other equipment. Hmm. <clears throat> Double in size for 1d4 rounds. While enlarged, the Durgar's melee attacks inflict double damage. Kind of like a growth potion, that's uh, pretty tough. Invisibility. The Durgar disappears from the sight of one or more creatures selected when the power is activated for one turn. Up to one hit die of creatures per level of the Durgar are affected. In combat, affected creatures may attack the Durgar with a minus four penalty after the first round. So, yeah, that's uh, that's limiting it a little bit at least. So, so you can't make yourself invisible to more powerful creatures, essentially. Um, or like a whole horde of goblins at first level, you could slip past the lone goblin sentry and make yourself invisible to them, but uh, not, you know, a pack of goblins. Shrinking. The Durgar and all equipment shrink to six inches tall for up to one turn per level. While shrunk, the Durgar can slip through narrow spaces and when remaining motionless has a 90% chance of going undetected. A shrunk Durgar cannot harm creatures larger than one feet tall. Hmm. Okay, that's, um, I think, covers all the bases. Heat. A creature or object within sight is subjected to a scorching heat. Paper or cloth ignite. Liquids boil and metals glow. The heat lasts for one round per level of the Durgar. Applied to flesh or to metal in contact with a creature. Ar metal armor. Um, the heat inflicts 1d4 damage per round. And how long can you do it? Oh, one round per level. Okay, well... Yeah, that's, um, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how the the PC Durgar in, in Unearthed Arcana were handled and stuff. None of these seem like they're terribly powerful. I mean, they're, they're very useful, and I think the Durgar is clearly a better class so far than, say, the Dwarf. Uh, but they do only have a D6 hit die rather than a D8, so that, that backs them down a little bit. Um, and their level progression, it would be interesting to see how, because there wasn't like a template really for this, how Gavin determined this. If he used something like, uh, I think Welsh Piper has a, a supplement for building classes for BX. I wonder if he used something like that, or if he has his own kind of, um, 
experience point progression generator for things that don't have a uh, uh, a basis in AD and D lore, like like this these these demi human as class, like the gnome, and we'll get to like the half elf, half orc, and stuff too here. Uh, but again, the the Durgar also has stealth underground. Durgar have a three and six chance of moving silently. That's pretty tough, and it doesn't say anything about armor, uh, so presumably you can stealth around in plate mail and stuff too, which is pretty tough. Uh, after reaching ninth level, they have the they have their domain thing here. Um, Durgar ruler may only hire Durgar mercenaries, specialists, and retainers of any race may be hired. All right, so there you have it, the Durgar. Would I use it again? Probably not. It's um, unless I ran an exclusively like underground campaign. Well, I should have had Keith as a special guest on for this because he just loves gnomes. That's his favorite thing in D and D are gnomes. It's it's really not. <laughs> Keith Keith hates gnomes. Uh, and Gavin here has kind of pieced together the gnome in a hodgepodge, uh, kind of accessing. The Illusionist, which we'll see later on, the Halfling, and the Dwarf to to make this kind of unique class, uh, this demi-humanist class kind of thing. So the Gnome has a minimum con of nine, like a, uh, like a Dwarf. Their prime requisites are dex and intelligence, so kind of like a Halfling has two attribute requirements, strength and dex. Uh, the Gnome has dex and intelligence. They have the a d4 hit die, so like a magic user or illusionist. But they may use leather and shields. They can use any weapon appropriate to size. So in this regard, they're, I guess they're kind of like an elf. They get uh, multiple languages, gnomish, dwarvish, kobold, the secret language of burrowing mammals. So kind of like the, uh, well, they had that in AD&D as well. Uh... So let's see, and they'd get arcane magic, so like like an elf. So I guess it's kind of folding in like an illusionist, an elf, a dwarf, a halfling. It's this this melting pot to create the gnome. So the gnome can cast spells like uh, like a magic user of the same level, uh, or I should say an illusionist of the same level, because they use the illusionist spells, and their spell casting is bound by all the various restrictions of... Uh, a magic user, with the exception, like an elf, that they can wear armor, at least leather and shield. Uh, their Thacko progression, I think, is like a thief. Uh, their saving throws are similar to a dwarf and a halfling, but slightly different. I think their breath weapon save is a little worse, and their spell save is a little better, but, but they don't improve until 6th level, so uh, kind of like a magic user, they don't... Their saving throws really don't improve much. And they're like a halfling. Gnomes are limited to 8th level. Also like a halfling, they get a defensive bonus uh, due to their small size. They get plus 2 on their AC when attacked by greater than human-sized oppo uh, opponents. They have the, like, uh, because they're kind of an underground species as well, they have the construction and and mining kind of abilities like a dwarf, but they don't get the finding room trap bonus. Uh, they can hide just like a halfling, so in, 
in the woodlands and stuff, they can hide with a 90% chance of success. And in dungeons, they can they get a 2 in 6 chance of hiding. They have 90-foot infravision. Not sure why they have better infravision than dwarves and elves. And they also don't have the uh, light sensitivity like... Uh, like a drow or durgar, so um, it looks like gnomes are the have the best vision of any of the demi-humans. And again, like all the other demi-humans, they get the two and six chance of uh, hearing noises. And as previously mentioned, they can speak. Uh, they often keep burrowing mammals such as badgers and moles as pets, and they know the secret language of s- such creatures. After reaching eighth level, they can create an underground stronghold that will attract gnomes from far and wide, and uh, they get a, an affinity with all the burrowing mammals within five miles of the stronghold. Uh, so, they're, yeah, it's kind of kind of this catch-all demi-human uh, hodgepodge of, of various class abilities. Um, it's an interesting class. I, I, I like it. Um, whether or not I'd actually use it. Uh, I don't think there are any gnomes listed in the Planet Eris campaign. If I were just running a regular old, like, Greyhawk campaign or something, I'd I'd use it. Um, of course, they, it is noted here that they're famed for their penchant for pointy red felt hats. Does that seal the deal? Hmm. Well, and then, uh, so the last thing is the whole experience point progression, too. So it's not as severe as the elf or the drow, you don't need 4,000 to get to second level, but you do need 3,000, and then 6,000, 12,000, 30, 60, 120, 240. So, um, yeah, they advance pretty slowly, slight, slightly uh, slower than a, an illusionist, for instance. Seems like, um, you know, unless you're you're certain or you're, you're thinking that the campaign's going to go beyond 8th level, I'd, I'd probably be a gnome before I'd be an illusionist, but... I don't know. That's, I guess, if you don't really dislike gnomes. Well, my intent was to also do the half-elf and a half-orc in this episode, but because it's almost an hour long already, I'm going to push those back and do all the, the rest of the classes in the next episode of the Advanced OSE, or OSE Advanced Fantasy Deep Dive. So thanks for the calls from Jason and Joe. If you have anything to add, um, yeah, please chime in. You can Drop me a voicemail in Discord if you still have access to the Anchor app. There's a few of us that still never uh, (laughs) refresh the program and can still leave messages through the app. But you could also probably drop me a voicemail through the actual Anchor um, internet portal or whatever. uh, Or you can email me a voice file at bigbalboni at gmail.com. So, thanks for listening, uh, and until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap. Just one last thing, or one more thing. (laughs) Yesterday, if you're a Viking fan, yesterday was the anniversary of a day that will live in infamy. 22 years ago, yesterday, the Vikings marched into the Meadowlands to face the Giants. I think they were a two-point favorite. And boy, did they whiz it down their leg. They lost 41 to nothing. It's uh, locally known as the 41 Donut Game. Um, and kind of sealed... 
It was the, the final nail in the coffin of my hopes as a Viking fan of ever seeing them win a Super Bowl. Ever since then, I've just kind of, I've hardly followed them. Uh, it, I've become now a Viking fan similar to how I'm a Gopher fan, where it's almost more enjoyable to just see how they bumble their way to, to failure yet again than any kind of hopes and aspirations of a Super Bowl championship. And today they go into, or they host the Giants today. So let's see. I don't know if this is the first time they faced the Giants in the playoffs since the 41 donut game. But uh, I remember I was going to watch that game with Keith and Chris and I think his brother Dan. We watched that at Dan's house. And I went into, I was running kind of late. And I stopped at a convenience store to pick up some chips and soda and I had the game on the radio, and it, would, it was just like gearing up for the kickoff. Went in, bought some chips and soda, came back out to the car. They were already down 7 nothing. By the time I got to Dan's house, I think they were down to like 14 nothing. This was like just a, like five minutes into the game, if that. I don't remember the, all the details. I just remember it was, it was, <laughs> it was a nightmare. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's my little sports rant today. There's a lot of people around here excited about the Vikings uh, playoff run, but most of us know deep down in our purple hearts that they're going to they're gonna just whiz it down their leg again. 